This is not like TV, only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's pure and uncut. It's straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're seeing it, you're hearing it, you're feeling it. And welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time forgot. I'm Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time brain hacker, Andrew Phillips. Open your mind and show us your tits. (laughs) (laughs) And today we're trolling through the memory banks of cinema as we're watching Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. But is this sci-fi thriller a memory worth saving or deleting? Well, that's what we're here to find out, but first, it's over to the trailer. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wire tripped? No? A virgin brain. Well, we're gonna start you off right. This isn't like TV only better. This is life. Yeah, it's a piece of somebody's life. Pure and uncut. Straight from the cerebral cortex. You're there. You're doing it, seeing it, hearing it, hearing it, you're feeling it. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? Like running into a liquor store with a 357 Magnum in your hand, feeling the adrenaline pumping through your veins. I can make it happen. I can get you anything you want. You just have to talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me. I'm your priest. I'm your shrink. I'm your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. The Santa Claus of the subconscious. You say it. You even think it. You can have it. Are we beginning to see the possibilities here? You know you want it. Everyone's favourite Nazi, Rafe Fiennes, has beat up a lot in this sci-fi noir from the director of The Hurt Locker and gay surfer dudes the movie, Catherine Bigelow. Set in an America on the brink of a devastating race war, Strange Days follows Lenny Nero, a small-time crook who deals in people's memories. But when Lenny comes into possession of a couple of tapes showing the murder of a black activist and the woman that witnessed the event, he soon finds himself on the run from killer racist cops and stalked by a deranged killer in a film that's somehow 20 years old but utterly relevant today. Now, Strange Days was actually nominated by a handful of our fans and I think it's actually been one of the most requested films for us to cover alongside probably Dread. Yeah, yeah, Dread comes up quite a lot. So, Andy, what experience, if any, do you have with Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days? None whatsoever, other than that I knew it existed. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really know anything about the premise, except I knew it involved some sort of... I originally thought it was involved virtual reality, but then obviously quickly discovered it didn't involve yeah. that. You thought it was like a lawnmower man. Yeah, thing. I kind of thought it was in that same staple and then realised it wasn't. And I didn't even realise it involved James Cameron until fairly recently. But um, that's about it. This is a film that's been really forgotten in the mainstream sense, even though it was made with quite a lot of money at the time and had quite a lot of well-known talent involved. 
but no, I just didn't really know much about the film other than I, I knew who was in it. Well, that's it. I mean, both its director, Catherine Bigelow, and its writer, James Cameron, have gone on to be Oscar-winning directors themselves since this film came out, really, and yet it's been kind of just swept under the carpet and forgotten, mm. which is quite strange considering like how prolific those filmmakers really are. Yeah, and especially as it's some of their strongest work. It is, it is. As well, as we'll discover. Well, I have seen Strange Days before, before even this episode. I've always wanted to revisit this film because I wasn't quite sold on it when I first watched it. I was 18 and I studied it as part of my college film studies course and we used it as an example of untraditional gender roles in Hollywood films. Yeah, That was why we were looking at this film. And a lot of the story was lost on me, especially the social relevance of the story at the time. I mean, I'm just... A white British male and this film is <laughs> yeah. concerned with the plight of somebody that doesn't fit that mold and at the time all that was lost on me and I didn't think I, I thought this film was fantasy more than reality and actually it's grew in relevance since this film came out. I think it's more of a sign that things haven't changed that yeah. much. But yes, yeah, so I was I was looking forward to rewatching this, knowing that, you know, times have changed and I myself have changed as well. So I was happy to really take a second look and really get into this film. Yeah. What he said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone who listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows that we like to provide a little background on our subjects. After all, it's important to know where a film comes from before we look at where it went. So what is the history behind Strange Days? Who are the players behind Strange Days? Well, we've already spoken about Catherine Bigelow. I think at this point in her career, she already had Point Break under her belt. Yep. And Near Dark. Near Dark. Oh, yeah. another classic, really. Mm-hmm. That's a, become something of a cult classic since, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's another film in between called Blue Steel. And there's another film that before Near Dark that was like a co-direction job. But this was like her fourth proper film. Did James Cameron have involvement with Near Dark? I remember because they do share a couple of the same actors in Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen. And I do remember that there is some overlap with that film mm. and James Cameron. I can't remember if he helped get it off the ground. I don't know in what context. I'd imagine at the time they would have been friendly seeing as they ended up having an affair and getting married two years later. So It's a James Cameron way. Yeah. Yeah, he kind of uh, marries them and has an affair with somebody else. Yes. <laughs> that seems yeah. to be his thing. Well, not now, but it used yeah, to be. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah. He's learnt from his ways. <laughs> yeah, it seemed to be something that he'd written for her in a way. I kind yeah. of think it was always intended for her. I mean, its genesis started off almost 10 years before because the original premise, the, the short story, was written around about 1984, 1985 and was called Magic Man. And it was a five-page story. Magic that- Mike? Magic Man. <laughs> no, no. But uh, yeah, it was called Magic Man and it was five pages long. It was awarded three stars by the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, no, it was meant to uh, infuse noirish elements with a high-tech edge. So very much like the Terminator... Well, they call it Tech Noir, and they call the the club in Terminator Tech Noir. The genre he created. Yeah, so this is yet another Tech Noir film, but obviously very different. Yeah, he wrote this little short story and uh, just lay about for quite a few years... And then during their actual marriage, it was proposed to Catherine Bigelow just after Point Break had come out and been a success, 
Was it success? I think it was. I want to say it was. It's certainly grown to be a yeah. huge success, really, especially uh, with the remake coming out, which I know didn't do all that well, mm. but it's certainly in its wings in that way. Yeah. But yeah, it was just after Point Break came out that he pitched the idea to Catherine Bigelow, and she seemed quite receptive to it. And then more time passed. And during this time, the LA riots took place. So the incident involving Rodney, Rodney King, King yeah. and the videotaping and the jury not recognizing that any brutal harm had come to, like, in terms of them stepping their bounds. Yeah. The jury had sort of voted against that and obviously caused all the riots, which lasted about five or six days. I think this obviously inspired James Cameron to look at this story in a different light and then add this element to it. Because you can really say that this is a film that has two strong themes running through it. Yeah. So you've got the LA riot part of it, and then you've got this noir-esque high-tech element running through it as well. And they do merge together quite well for the most part. There are a couple of bits where it doesn't, but it, for the most part, it does merge well it does, together. Yeah. But yeah, apparently in 1993, uh, even though they'd been divorced for quite some time at this point, um, she received a 131-page scriptment, which is a famous James Cameron thing. Does anyone else do scriptments, or is it just a James Cameron thing? I've only ever seen it from James Cameron. Whenever yeah. I've looked at scripts online, I've only ever seen James Cameron's look the way that they do, which is halfway between a script and a treatment. Yeah. It kind of sums up grand swathes of the script in just a couple of pages, and then it'll get into real detail with a couple mm. of key scenes. I do actually quite like his scriptments. I do. They're actually better than an initial screenplay. I think they give you a better picture. Of mm-hmm. what it will be like. I think it's because he's a strong auteur, yeah. it kind of suits his style. And because he generally writes everything he directs, there are a couple of things. They obviously they are quite essential to get across his vision to other people, especially yeah. when usually what he's doing is potentially quite radical, mm-hmm. which they usually are. So this 131-page scriptment came through the door, and they hired Jay Cox, the fantastically named Jay Cox, ah, Cox, <laughs> to um, make the script shoot ready, i.e., turn it into a proper streamlined screenplay. I think him and Bigelow hit it off on a creative front. No more Rumpy Pumpy here. Despite what the name may suggest. <laughs> but yeah, they put their own stamp on it as well. So I think at the time when it came out, it was very much misinterpreted as being a James Cameron film, all but in name. Yeah. But in fact, a large proportion of the ideas that come through in the screenplay are um, were made when they made it into a proper screenplay. Yeah. So James Cameron definitely has a large part to play in this film, but yeah. it's not just him. There's a lot of ideas going around everywhere. Well, that's it. It's still from his idea. Yeah. He's still got a great creative influence on especially the final version of the mm. film. But we also have to acknowledge Jay Cox and his writing, which I think goes very much unnoticed looking at a lot of the um, acclaim that this film gets. It's more so level at James Cameron's door. Yeah, and also for what Jay Cox has done... In addition to, because he's written quite a few other screenplays, and he's written, he's currently writing the screenplay for Martin Scorsese's Silence, mm-hmm. which is his new film. But he's um, been involved in quite a lot of other things. He worked on uh, Scorsese's Age of Innocence as well, uh, and Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York, yeah, he seems so, to be something of a Scorsese regular. And he also did an uncredited rewrite of Titanic. Okay, cool. So yeah, he's a solid screenwriter there. Yeah, so, it seems it. Really solid career. Yeah, and James Cameron said even though they didn't have that much contact together, they didn't really work side by side. It was more sort of he passed it on to him and went from there. So it's more like a relay team, really. Yeah. But he said he thought it was a good collaboration. Uh, I think probably because they didn't step on each other's toes as well. It was quite quite an, a harmonious process. 
yeah, and it goes from there. And I'd imagine probably because of the status of Point Break and obviously just James Cameron's status at the time, it got greenlit. I mean, this is actually a full-on Lightstorm production as well. It is, yeah. It's kind of funny in a way because although it features a lot of stock James Cameron elements, it shares a lot of stock James Cameron themes, especially talking about uh, fearing the future of technology, yeah. that kind of thing. There's a lot of elements in the film where you can generally tell that he's either going into new places or it's Catherine Bigelow's or Jay Cox's influence because there's a lot of stuff that's genuinely darker than where he would normally go. Yeah. Most obviously in the middle section of the film. Yeah. Involving all the... Uh, it's basically a modern take on uh, snuff movies. Yeah, really. essentially is, yeah. And, I mean, talking about James Cameron as well and his fixation on technology and telling cautionary tales about technology james cameron himself is something of a contradiction when it comes to this because as a director james cameron loves technology oh yeah and is constantly yeah. attempting to pioneer the future of filmmaking and how we make films mm. and yet many of his tales they carry the same message which is beware of technology and especially suppose- in avatar as well like avatar is like the most blatant one as well, yeah. even more so than Terminator. It's the funny that Avatar is the go-back-to-nature film and it's actually the most high-tech of all it of his films, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of weird. But it's weird that this film as well, Strange Days, actually um, has that message at its core where the very technology that the film is about, it offers a cautionary tale about that, about us all living in the past and not living in the now because we're too busy reliving our memories. We're too busy wrapping ourselves in nostalgia rather than concentrating on what we have now yeah it uses that same technology to uncover social injustices and criminal injustices Mm. as well and things like that so it's like this film also presents us with a technology that in itself it can't be good it can't be bad but it can be both i like that i like that it's still got that james cameron imprint on it just in terms of how it deals with that specific technology yeah I think the other thing that it tells us is that mini discs aren't good for anything. <laughs> no. So. I did have a mini disc player myself. Yeah, I yeah. did as well. It did bring it flooding back. Yeah. Watching it did film. make me chuckle a little bit. It's one of the only bits that really dates the film is that they use mini discs. And there's actually one shot where I think they forgot to scribble out the mini disc logo. Oh, so right, he's yeah. looking at the disc and it actually says mini disc on it. And I was like, is it supposed to look like that? <laughs> they, is that supposed to be left on it? Because obviously at the time, mini disc would have been the most high-tech thing that you could have thought of because I think yeah. it came out around about 1994. Yes. Something like that. But yeah, I still got my mini disc player at home. Yeah. I mean, all my first digital recordings after going from tape were on mini disc. So I do have a certain fondness for that format. I do. And I always like say watching this film, it did bring it flooding back, just that wave of nostalgia, <laughs> which I guess this film in itself is about nostalgia. Yeah. So in a way, it couldn't be more relevant now since at the moment we are wrapped up in nostalgia. We mm. are constantly looking back, yeah. even just in cinema terms. Mm. But um, the thing I found most interesting, because I came into the film not knowing what it was about at all, because yeah. I thought it was something else entirely. It was a really nice surprise because I didn't realize I had all these extra elements. I knew it had a kind of reputation, but I wasn't prepared for all these extra elements that were going to be introduced in this film. About sort of like two thirds of the way through, me and Jess were both saying, oh, yeah, we really enjoyed this film. It was really, really good. In fact, it kind of only just sort of stumbles in the last 
15, 20 minutes, I'd say, mm-hmm. where I feel like it doesn't wrap up completely satisfying. I think it's just that there are too many subplots mm. and that they don't quite come together in a way that's satisfying. They don't quite complement each other in the way that you really want them to. And you start to get the feeling that maybe they just went with too many ideas. But at the same time, I would always, always rather a film go for too many ideas yeah, yeah. and too few. Ambition trumps it, in my opinion. And I'd rather take a film that's flawed in that way than a film that's flawed in being too cowardly and not taking enough risks yeah i mean it does have a couple of flaws but we'll talk about those as we go yes, on we will, yeah but yeah on the whole it's a really interesting and solid film but as we go on we will reveal why it's been forgotten and i think there's quite a few obvious things to explain why i think yeah you're right and one of the things that i do think that we are going to discuss is this goes on is that in some ways this film was ahead of its time whilst also being very rooted in its time Mm. but yeah we will get into that as we go i think now is time for us to actually start discussing the film yeah uh, because we've now set the stage you know all of the players that are involved first off just before we do so i want to ask you are you a fan of Catherine bigelow at all as a filmmaker I don't know why, but I've just never got around to watching that many other films. I do actually own quite a few, but I've still just not got around to watching them. Yeah. <laughs> I feel really bad now because like, this is probably the first Catherine Bigelow film I've actually sat down and watched all the way through. So I can't say that I have that much experience with her as a director, although I kind of liked what I saw yeah. as such. And I know that there are a couple of films that don't quite work, but on the whole, she's very, very consistent. Yeah, done quite a, a wide variety of work. She's not one of these directors that sticks to a certain kind of thing or has a particular kind of style. I mean, I'd say the two films that are the most connected are probably her most recent films, sort of Her yeah. Locker and Zero, Zero Dark, Dark Thirty. Yeah, they're kind of almost companion pieces to each other. Yeah, they do seem it. Yeah, actually, a new film is actually more related to Strange Days. Oh, is it? In fact, because it is a film set during the 1967 Detroit riots. Yeah, it's going to be released next year in time for the 50th anniversary of the riots. Lovely. Well, (laughs) I mean, that's what I want to talk about, really. Speaking about Catherine Bigelow is that she does seem to be somebody that's very much interested in current events. Yeah, she's quite topical. Exactly. And if we look at Strange Days and what it has to say about the Rodney King riots and also what it even has to say about now with Black Lives Matter and the Ferguson riots, and then we look at what she's done with Zero Dark Thirty and The Hurt Locker about yeah. his commentary on Iraq. She is somebody that's very current in terms of the social issues that she is tackling. Yeah. And we... I, I think that's what she brings to Strange Days. She brings that raw social commentary. Yeah, because there was that outbreak of vampires in the late 80s. <laughs> and uh, there was a, a massive abundance of gay surfer dudes. Totally. In the early 90s yeah, as well. So, yeah, she is very topical. <laughs> But as Catherine Bigelow, as a filmmaker, I've seen about half of her films, I reckon. I've seen Nerd Dark, which I loved. Point Break, which is fun because it's so silly and overblown. And and kind of cheesy, yeah. And cheesy and uh, almost Top Gun-ish in a way in terms of its homoeroticism. Yeah, I think I know it more from Hot Fuzz than I do the actual film itself. And I really like it for that. But and I did see The Hurt Locker as well, and I um, really enjoyed The Hurt Locker. I mm. think it's a it's a film that I would describe as being purposefully disjointed and really gets you into the headspace of what it is like to, to be there. It's not about the story. It's about being there and the characters and placing you right on the front line. 
Yeah, and um, going back to kind of how we were talking about Tank Girl all those months ago, it's weird that The Hurt Locker is actually, it's the only film that's been directed by a woman that's won Best Picture and also won Best Director. Yeah. And also it's the lowest grossing film to win Best Picture. It is, yeah. Which is kind of sad when you think about it. If that's the only film and also it's the lowest grossing, it really paints a a really quite bleak picture. I mean, Catherine Bigelow is a woman working in a male-dominated environment. Mm. and especially in a genre that is traditionally masculine and she not only works within those genres but she fucking excels as well Mm. and i think it's sad that she is really the only example that people have of that kind of director to go back to and everybody always uses it oh what about Catherine bigelow it'd be better if we had so many more to choose from yeah because she's because she was treated as a uh, as the token woman director when that shouldn't have happened exactly her work should have stood up for itself not just because it's directed by a woman because that's the thing with this film you can tell in a way it's directed by a woman but it's not obvious mm-hmm. if you know what i mean it doesn't have a major part to play in the way that the story is told i think the thing that many people miss when they talk about female directors and male directors and female storytellers and male storytellers is people are just telling stories about people yeah at the end of the day these are just stories about people with their own flaws and their own strengths and that's what strange days is it's a story about people there are slight differences but they're really subtle and more in the way that it's just unconventional you know there's a different take on it yeah or something rather than it being extremely feminist or anything like that especially like way more subtle than like even tank girl is where obviously that definitely is a feminist film oh yeah i mean that wears its heart and its sleeve whereas with Catherine bigelow it's it's definitely much more subtle it's much more evenly handed what this film is doing is the opposite of that she's acknowledging there's a slightly different take on it but we're not going to dwell on this yeah. sort of thing this is my film i'm a person and this is what i'm going to say yeah and it doesn't matter whether i'm a man or a woman it's that's what i'm doing yeah like i said before she has definitely worked against the current in a way mm. and held her own but it did almost come crashing down on her with k9 the Widowmaker as well which is the harrison ford liam neeson yeah i go as far to say that it almost like flatlined her career she almost did a tank girl and uh, i think it was because of the fact that the hurt locker was so low budget i think it was made for about 15 million dollars yeah and the fact that it hit so hard it was basically seen as a comeback film from her and um she's been able to do things since then so it was really like a resurgence for her because basically throughout the whole of the 2000s her career was pretty much dead it was yeah and she would have gone by the way of a lot of other women filmmakers at the time yeah because it seems to be that when a female filmmaker fails in such a way um the way that studios deal with it is by saying oh well that was because it was directed by a woman Mm. whereas it seems that males do get more than one chance at the blockbuster machine Mm. and if they fail they're given a couple of chances to really keep their head above water and like we were saying before as well i think that was almost even reflected at the time when this film came out and people emphasizing James Cameron's contribution over hers, even though it's her film. Yeah. That's not good. No, it's not, yeah. Again, we could do a whole podcast about we could. <laughs> about this. But, it just seems to seep through every now and again on yeah. these podcasts. But let's actually start, begin discussing yeah. the film itself mm. and the characters and the story and mm. whatnot. And to give a brief overview as well about what I feel about this film, I think it's obvious I really, really like Strange Days. I really love what it's got to say. Its central plot is really about a man who deals in memory, which by itself is a very interesting idea. I mean, what did you think about the film overall? Yeah, I really liked it, and I liked the way that it approached 
a lot of the subject matter. Yeah, I like the way that it dealt with memories as experiences to relive because in the real world, you only get one chance to live those memories. Mm -hmm. But this is a man that keeps going back to his memories and kind of lives through his memories because he can't get back to where they were in real life. So he basically just relives the old ones. I like that as a strong theme. And there's so many strong themes in this as well. There's there's almost too many. It's kind of quite overwhelming how many themes there are in this film. As I spoke about earlier, it becomes one of the flaws of the film in that there is a lot going on. You've got this whole thing with the memories that people are reliving and dealing in and stuff like that. And people are selling memories on the black market where other people get to live them out and feel the same emotions and stuff like that. I mean, that's its own story. And then you've got a murder included in that. And then a rape slash murder as yeah, well. Yeah, you've got a murder which turns into a martyrdom. Yes. Which starts off a riot, which is already the result of underlying tensions anyway. And then you've got a essentially a broken man who's fallen very far. And it's how the two main characters can help each other get out of each of the situations. Yeah. And they both have things to offer each other. And then you've got the whole snuff movie element to it as well. (laughs) So, yeah, there is. And then you've got the whole idea of um, the renegade cops. So you've got the corruption in policing angle as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's so many things in this. Yeah. And and yeah, I think the reason there is, is, there's so many things being introduced throughout the whole film that when it tries to wrap everything up, it sort of goes a bit like... Yeah, yeah, it kind of falls over itself to wrap everything up. It just becomes a bit too top-heavy and falls over. Yeah, but not not in a really bad way, just that because the quality level's been so high for such a long period of the film that when it comes to wrap up, it's a slight letdown at the end, I'd say. I mean, back when I watched this at college, um, that was always what I had issue with most as well, was the way everything kind of wraps up in the end. And that's why I, I think when I first saw it, I walked away thinking, yeah, it was good, but it wasn't great. I'm watching it now, I'm much fonder of it. Mm. but i still have that same issue i still have that issue that it doesn't quite come together in the end but i'm much more appreciative of everything that's come before Mm. it yeah and at the center of it you do have these really strong central characters these two characters which is lenny played by ray fines and mace played by angela bassett and i do have a little bit of trivia about angela bassett in this film (laughs) the sample from fatboy slims uh right here right now is actually taken from this film and a piece of dialogue from angela bassett yeah can we actually just play that right now right here right now you're gonna get yourself killed for this oh, for this toxic waste bitch what the fuck are you doing oh, this is your life right here right now it's real time you hear me real time time to get real not playback and there you go that's oh from this one even though no one went to see it. Yeah, so the reference is lost on most people. Fatboy Slim did. <laughs> he obviously did. But um, those two, as characters, are fantastic. And it's weird to think that Ray Fiennes was coming off the back of Schindler's List to do this film. In fact, uh, both actors are playing against type in this film. They're both playing roles that are atypical of the role that they would normally play. I'd imagine that would have been the appeal of signing up for this film Other than just the ideas of the film being really good, I think just for the characters that they were playing, because this was Ray Fiennes' first American film, I'd imagine it would have been quite appealing to not play a British character or a Mm -hmm. character that he's known for playing. 
And for Angela Bassett, she was known for playing victims a lot of the time. She's, she was really known up until this point for Malcolm X and What's Love Got To Do With It, which is the Tina Turner biopic. So they were basically playing the opposite of what they were known for. Yeah. Which I think they would have obviously found quite attractive. And they do really well because I kept thinking all the way through watching Strange Days, especially with Ray Fiennes. I was like, he's playing this character. It's just really weird watching him play this kind of character because you're so used weird. to him playing the Ray Fiennes kind of character. Yes. It's usually a uh, someone who's very well-spoken. When you watch Ray Fiennes, you kind of know what you're going to get. And they usually have a certain like, class as well yeah. to talk about. Whereas Lenny in this, well, he's a street dealer. And he's street smart. Yeah. And yeah. it's completely not what you would and expect to see. And he's kind of seedy and a bit yeah. weaselly. And yeah, he's. Uh... And he knows how to just wriggle himself out of any situation, really, yeah. almost. Which actually doesn't work all that often, actually. <laughs> he, he often gets on very much so with the people that are hurting him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see him do something like this. And it's kind of a shame that the film didn't do so well. I don't think he's really played any parts like this. And the same for Angela Bassett as well, because she is a really strong character. And again, it's a shame because this is a character that is a good role model for people to see and mm-hmm. um, because it is a complete role reversal for the male and female leads yeah. of the film as you would normally see. I really do want to peek into the alternate universe where this film was a hit and it changed the careers of these two stars because mm. I'd really like to see where Ray Fine's career would have gone. I mean, Angela Bassett, I'm trying to think of what other films that she had been in since. Well, I mean, I think her career as a leading or very upfront actress was very brief. Yeah. I think it was, uh, she had a very bad year in 95 because she did this film, yeah, which obviously did nothing, and she did Vampire in Brooklyn, that <laughs> classic Eddie Murphy film that no one remembers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it really flatlined her career as a, a leading lady in a mainstream sense. Yeah. She was the co-lead in Supernova, I do think, mm. but that was another film that just completely bombed. Yeah. It was a black hole. I think it was just no a string I think it was just a money. string of failures. Yeah. Whereas Ray Fiennes was lucky enough to do English Patient the year after, so I think yeah, that sort of sent his career in a completely different direction. I really like Ray Fiennes' character in this. I really like Lenny. He's mm. very likable because I think the thing is about him is he's a complete weakling physically. Which, we were talking about this earlier, and I know that in film noirs it's normally expected to have the physically imposing male in the film, but actually since, it's become more acceptable, really, to have a bit of a weakling main character who's more likeable. I was trying to think of what film set off that trend, and we came to the conclusion that it was Jack Nicholson in Chinatown, because mm. he isn't really a physical guy in that film, and no. he gets beat up a lot. Um, I think he gets his nose cut open as well. Mm. So I think that this film actually is playing on that somewhat by casting this Lenny type as being just a weakling that can try to talk himself out of any situation. And it's just genuinely quite likable. Yeah. But I like his determination. I like how driven he is. That even when he does get beat up, like uh, there's a scene where he gets through out of the club when the door closes behind him. <laughs> He climbs up on top of the garbage can, smashes the window, and climbs back inside the club yeah. again. It's like, I, I like that about him. Yeah, he's got a Straight strong, strong determination. Yeah. But um, I think the way that it plays it out, it's a character that has been strong, but has been weakened for various reasons. Some of which I think are a little bit vague. That's the only thing I'd have to say about his character. I never really got why he wasn't a cop anymore no it doesn't really go into it and it, it does pose the idea that he was actually a good cop as well yeah because it looks like things have happened to make him weaker and the, and the reason why he's weaker is that he's got lost in all these memories yeah and he's not really living out his life 
he's really just living out his life through his memories now and, yeah. and he's kind of given up on that other side and he's lost his and he's just surrounded get up himself with the person that he used to be yeah and the relationships he used to have yeah and it's the angela bassett character that helps him regain that yeah really but yeah just in terms of i thought that the um the subplot around that and also his relationship with the commissioner in fact, I probably thought that was probably the vaguest and probably weakest part of the film for me. Yeah, um, and that's when he comes into play towards the end as well. Yeah, because I think that's why it becomes a little bit muddled because there's that whole little subplot with the commissioner, but I don't think he's in the film enough for you to really get a picture that he is the only uncorruptible guy because when you first introduced to that character, they don't paint him as being a very nice person to our main character no, so he isn't. you don't quite buy that he would be the only person that's incorruptible i think as well once we actually start to tackle the social themes in this film and the things that it's playing on like the rodney king riots and if we take it and compare it to things now like i was talking about black lives matter and ferguson mm. it, it asks us to believe that it kind of ties everything off in a neat little bow when it never would in real life. No. I guess it ends on a very naive note with everything being okay when in the real world. Yeah, it's I just not didn't like that. quite buy it. I kind of thought it would have been better if it ended on a slightly more downbeat note. Yeah. Because, yeah, everything is a little bit too neat at the end. Yeah, it is a film after all, and it does end very neat. And it does end on the message that love will triumph over hate. And um, that's what brings Lenny and Mace together. I like that. I really like that, but it loses its edge. It loses its like realism mm. in that moment. Especially because it is a film of extremes because you've got that, but then there's other things in the middle of the film which are very edgy. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, it's very atypical of something that James Cameron would do. Yeah. And it's kind of indicative that because James Cameron was an uncredited editor on this, it's kind of quite revealing that the um, the section of the film that he was most responsible for editing wise was the end yeah and I think that's where they're the most James Camerony elements of the whole film I'd say it is yeah uh, especially like the showdowns at the end they do feel very James Cameron I kind of feel like in a way I'd rather see Catherine Bigelow's take on that or the existing editor's take on that rather yeah. than his but I can't really comment on it too much because I don't know exactly what he was involved in yeah but I do know that he was that was his biggest contribution to the editing side of it anyway but at the same time you can forgive it because it's done so well up until then it doesn't really matter too much <laughs> to do well, I mean I think that's the thing I think it's just I always come across as being quite pessimistic whenever I approach these kind of happy endings mm. I do want to believe in the happy ending I really do but mm. I just I don't quite buy it that's the problem but um, I mean talking back uh, characters I mean the next one really is when we need to talk about is Mace as yeah. a character and like i say in college she was very much a staple for our class to discuss and um again we were asked to look at who was the director and how she had interpreted this character who had wrote it all those these kind of things and really talk about what informed this non-typical gender role and you know what the thing is at the end of the day that i like about mace is that she's not treated as being a feminist icon in a way i mean i do think she is but it's more so that she's just a character. And I think that's where it works best is that they're not making a crazy statement with her because I think too many filmmakers miss out on the point of having strong female roles. And it's that when people say that they want to see more strong female roles and not talking about physicality. No. They're talking about strong character roles. Mm. As in, let's make these characters better. Let's give them strengths and weaknesses. 
And I think with her in this film is they just treat her as a person and as a well-written, well-rounded character. I think that's what it works. Yes, she is physically imposing more so than Lenny in this film. Mm. But she still feels like a character in the same way that, say, Ripley does in Aliens as well. Yeah. But she's a character that's informed by her circumstances. Exactly, yeah. Rather than just being that character. I mean, I think other filmmakers have misinterpreted that. And we've ended up with characters like Mila Jovovich in Resident Evil, which is a character that has no, like, there's nothing going on. And she's a physically strong female character, but is not much else. That said, though, I suppose we do have our own airhead strong male characters (laughs) that have no depth. Yeah, Uh, I mean, yeah. I think we can look at any number of Jason Statham films. But for I that. think that's where the um, we're talking about the strength thing, where that yeah. sort of gets misunderstood, is that you have a strong character. We don't mean physically strong, but we just mean strong as yeah. a character, as an actual individual with interesting things about them. So yeah, it doesn't mean that they have to be physically strong. I mean, although this character is physically strong, that's only because of what she does and who she is and where she's come from. Yeah. And again, she has her own flaws. And the reason that they sort of come together and attracted to one each other and their friends is that they are kind of both sides of the coin and they can help each other become yeah. whole. But that's it. Yeah, they complement each other in the way that they make each other better people. But in the way that it does it, it basically switches around those gender roles because in a film that you would typically get, it would be the other way around. Yeah. But the thing that they do, which makes it way more interesting, and I think that's one of the reasons why the film failed, ultimately, is that they do something which I would say is more European. And I say that because I think if this wasn't a James Cameron written film and hadn't been sort of spearheaded by James Cameron, I would bet money on the fact that if this was an unsolicited script, there'd be someone saying this male lead isn't strong enough. Yeah, definitely. And it's not likable enough. And your balance is all wrong. Mm -hmm. Because that's not how films should go. Uh, At least not Hollywood films anyway. And I think that's one of the reasons why it failed. I'd imagine the studio wouldn't know how to handle that element of the well, film. I can imagine them getting the piece of paper off the table, across the table that has a load of countries on them and saying, oh, well, here are all the countries that this is, the film's not going to sell in. You yeah. know, that, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Which always comes across in these type of films. I know that people who have spoke about working in those environments have said that they've often got lists of things that they can and cannot do because of what does and doesn't sell internationally. Yeah, because when we go into it later, it did look like the studio didn't know how to handle it and just kind of threw it away in the end they cut their losses uh which is a real shame but actually going into this it's interesting to see given the character that lenny is and his relationship to mace who they were thinking of casting for the role (laughs) when they were in pre-production and uh, there were some choices which i think would have completely undermined everything that we've just said and would take the film off in completely different directions well tell us a couple of the names of the people involved yeah so before ray fines was considered and got the role of lenny the person who they were thinking of i think this is the first person they were thinking of and i imagine that because at the time they would have just finished true lies (laughs) or working on true lies at the time tom arnold no Although I think Tom Arnold probably would have been more appropriate, actually. But uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was considered for the role of Lenny, which I'm just going to say no. No. That would have been completely... In order to wrong. make it fit Arnold Schwarzenegger, they would have to turn it into like another The Sixth Day or well, something. Well, they would like have just had to have immediately reversed roles. Film. Yeah, completely. Which would have made yeah. it just like any other film. I know, yeah. And, I mean, uh, that's the thing. Could you imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger being beat up by any of the characters in yeah. this film? <laughs> Yeah, and then you've got people like Tom Cruise 
which again, no, because he's too well known for doing a certain kind of thing. Although having said that, I would say if he was doing it as in um, Edge of Tomorrow, it may have worked. Yeah, yeah. He was playing against type. Yeah. Because again, at the end of the day, Ray Fiennes is playing against type, but I think they've got more scope to do that than... Yeah, say Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'd say, no, I'd say, yeah, if you're right, if he was playing it like Edge of Tomorrow, where he's really quite Weasley and a fast talker. I think Tom Cruise can do Weasley actually. Yeah, but then you've got people like there was Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid, who I thought was would have actually worked. They were looking at John Travolta after viewing Pulp Fiction. That probably could have worked. Yeah, as well. could have worked. Yeah, and uh, Kurt Russell. The thing is about Kurt Russell is, I guess, there's an element of this character Lenny that has to be a little bit like a snake oil salesman yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. I don't see that in Kurt Russell. He's too no. cool. Yeah, he's not slippery enough. Yeah, slippery, that's yeah. what I'm looking for. Uh, and uh, Denzel Washington, who, uh, again, I don't think would really work. Too cool. Too cool, yeah. Too cool. Not that Ray Fiennes isn't cool, but he's cool in a different way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, in just saying that, though, you have pitched about six different types of films. Like, this film changes completely depending on, on whoever who you cast that role, as Lenny. Yeah. And it's weird to think that in an alternate universe, would this film have done better business if one of those guys had been cast other than Ray Fiennes? Arnold Schwarzenegger at that time, I think it would have really been a blockbuster, but it wouldn't have been half as good. No, not at all. And I say that as somebody that loves Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, because that's the dichotomy, isn't it? Where you've got these star names, but they can basically ruin the film, but the film would do better. Well, we saw it last week when we talked about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm. When we were saying it was, in fact, the casting of Sean Connery that was kind of the film's downfall, or Mm. at least start of its downfall. Mm. I mean, the cast in this film is universally excellent. It's a fucking well-cast film. It is, although I'd say... And we were talking about this yeah, last week, uh, same, similar to Richard Roxburgh. You can kind of call yeah. Tom Seesmore as the villain pretty much from the start, because it's Tom Seesmore. When I first watched this film at college, I called that he was the villain straight from the off. And you said it to me earlier. It's simply because it's Tom Sizemore. Yeah, especially when you start seeing the first person snuff movie stuff. It's like, that's going to be Tom Sizemore at the end of the mm-hmm. day, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, no matter what the film's telling you, mm-hmm. you know it's going to be ultimately Tom Sizemore, which is, it's just a little too obvious Yeah, with the casting. Yeah, it is. And they should have got someone who was a bit more everyman or nicer. Mm-hmm. Because the character's meant to be a private detective, you could have maybe done something a little bit more subtle there. Although, again, I like Tom Seesmore anyway, but it just, I think, the uh, reveal's a little bit softened yeah. by that. Because yeah, by the end, you're like, yeah, it's him. I do have to agree that it's just, it's clear from the outset. I mean, we know what type of characters Tom Seesmore plays. Mm. So, yeah, it's clear as day before frame one where this film's going to go. Yeah. Otherwise, even including Tom Seesmore, I still think it's a really strong cast because you've got, like we talked about, Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett, Tom Seesmore, Juliette Lewis, who's great in this film. Yeah, she's actually uh, precursoring what her career would later be. Yeah. Which is a rock singer. <laughs> yeah. Because that's basically what she does mainly now is mm-hmm. be a rock singer with Juliet and the Licks and now as a solo artist. But it's funny that they use a PJ Harvey song as one of her main songs because she kind of plays it like PJ Harvey. <laughs> yeah. As well, like that she's channeling that kind of thing just in her performance as well because I think that's quite a strong influence on her but yeah she's very convincing as that role even just as a role yeah yeah because I did read some reviews that heavily criticized her in the film and I think it was more of just like a personal thing against her as an actress like I think they couldn't quite buy that he would be obsessed with her 
I don't get that. I liked the idea that he was obsessed with somebody who was, at the end of the day, rotten. And you could see that the person that he should really be with but that's is the, thing. the Angela Bassett yeah, character. Yeah, that's the whole but point of film. you can't see it for such a long time. He can't see it because he's too busy living in a world that isn't really real. It's his memories. He's too busy mm. living in the but past. But she can for the whole time. Yeah. Because you know that she... And so can we. Yeah. And yeah. to everybody else, it's as clear as day. Mm. But um, I really do like her in this film, actually, Juliette Lewis. In fact, it's a really funny thing, because obviously she spends most of the film not wearing that many clothes no. in the film. And uh, somebody, uh, one reviewer joked that Juliette Lewis's nipples should have had second billing in the film. <laughs> second and third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because she's yeah. pretty much wearing either nothing or just a bit of netting. Yeah, uh, for most is. of the film. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely fearless in terms yeah. of nudity, for sure. Yeah. But, you know, I, I really liked that whole element. I loved all the memories that she was involved in as well. I liked that whole subplot of him keep revisiting these old yeah. memories. And, and also, I like the juxtaposition because they look so happy. And then for the rest of the film, she looks like so horrible and she's really yeah. horrible towards him and she makes all the wrong choices and ultimately. She's kind of the uh, the ugly character. If you're going back to the good, the bad, and the ugly, she's the ugly character. Yeah, she she's is. neither good nor bad. Uh, she walks that line, and she ultimately pays for making those wrong decisions. Well, well she's just ultimately treated like a true shade of grey. She's the femme fatale yeah. in the noir-esque uh, yeah, setting, she is. isn't she? Yeah. yeah, the ruby red lips. Yeah. And that's the character type that she occupies. And it's funny in a way, because you don't really think about it when you're watching it, but it does take all those noirish archetypes because a lot of the times in noir films, uh, they can actually be performers yeah. and in show business and things like that. And obviously they supplant that in that she's like a grunge indie rock singer. Yeah. But you don't think about that when you're watching it. No, no. It's a true noir film, mm. actually, straight down to its core. Yeah. And it's, it really plays quite well. Talking about the indie rock thing as well, we also have Michael Winkart as well. And Wig. And Wig, There's a lot yeah. of wigs in this film. <laughs> What's the name of his character again? Philo? Philo Pastry. Philo Pastry, Philo- yeah. Philo Cant. <laughs> He's a Philo Cant. He's a bit of a Philo, him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Philo Gant. It's a weird... <laughs> it's a horrible name. Weird name. Yeah, it's definitely a name that makes me just feel I a think, bit weird inside. I think at this point in the 90s, Michael Wincott was just the villain for hire. Yes, he was. Uh, yeah. For quite a few years. Basically from <laughs> Robin Hood up until probably early in Resurrection, he was like the dodgy guy for hire. He's just got a great look and sound. Yeah. He kind of disappeared, though, for quite a long time because of the way he looks and his voice and everything. I think he just got pigeonholed far yeah. too many times. I think he's resurging a little bit now because he was in... Um, he was in that 24 miniseries, I think, and he's in a couple of new things now. But I don't think his career in the early 2000s was too great. No. I just thought, is this a guy that died or something? Because he just seemed to have disappeared. It's like he had the look of Gary Oldman, but a sound that was much kind of, I guess, that lends itself to villainous individuals. Because he, he does sound kind of scary, just yeah. naturally. He's like Gary Oldman, but mixed with Val Kilmer. Yeah. But with the voice of Tom Waits. <laughs> something <laughs> like that. <laughs> But yeah, I, yeah. I, I do like Michael Wincott and he always uh, he's always entertaining. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and then who else? Do we? we have a couple of other people. We have uh, um, William Fitchner and Vincent D. De, De how, how do we say his name? De, that De, guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the iconic bad guy from Jurassic World. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that other bad guy from Men in Black. Yeah. It's always funny when I say, well, that's the guy from Men in Black because they make him up so heavily oh, in Men in Black. Everyone goes, huh? But he looks great in that film. He's played so well. But I think everybody knows him as Private Pile. Oh, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. He'll always be Private Pile, yeah. I think. Well, but, it's, um, it's a relatively small role for who are relatively big actors now. Yeah. 
And he's another guy who just disappeared for quite a long time and then ended up, for better or worse, resurging in uh, Jurassic World. <laughs> I think he was in TV for a while. Yeah. I think that's what happened. I think he was in one of the um, CSI programs. I-, I just wish it was a better role that he'd resurged in because he's yeah. definitely like... Well, there's many weak parts of Jurassic... Why do we always keep going back to Jurassic World? But there's many weak parts of Jurassic World, but he's one of the worst parts of the film, Six Degrees of Jurassic World we shall play. And I hate saying that because I really like him as an actor. Yep, great actors do bad movies, happens all the time. But um, I really like those two in this. Because the great thing about this film is that a lot of the film is about misdirection. And that's not even just for the characters, but it's also for the audience. Because when those characters are introduced, you think they're after the girl who they're pursuing throughout the first half of the film. You think they're after her for a completely different reason. Yeah. Because, say, what they're doing is kind of illegal. But it turns out that they're after her for a completely different reason. And they're not quite as noble or law-abiding as you think they are originally. Because I thought they were going to be sort of good guys at the start. Or at least they were going to come good or get on their side at some point. And I didn't realize that that... The whole other element was going to come into play because this is not a film that gives you everything up front. Things unravel as time goes on. And we also get, what's his name, Uh, Richard... We talked about him a couple of weeks ago because it was in Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, Richard Edson, of course, yeah. Yeah, playing the Tick character who's kind of like the lovable sidekick. Yeah, he is. (laughs) (laughs) I really quite like him in this film. He works well. It's really quite sad when he gets sort of... uh, Well, he doesn't get bumped off, but he gets his brain fried. Yeah, I do like that whole. Turn his um, frontal lobes into scrambled yeah, eggs. Or yeah, yeah. I like the image as well of when they do it because they do a lot of POV for loads of different kind of things, but they do the POV from the brain dead person's point of view, and it's like a weird technical uh, interference. And then yeah, we've got the guy playing um, Jericho One. Yeah, played by Glenn Plummer or Tupac, as they uh, rather unwittingly predicted. There is this whole element to the film as well to do with Jericho One. I do want to speak about it for a moment in terms of you do have this preacher type character who's talking about social injustice specifically about the treatment of black individuals in america and it all comes together with this jericho one character and it it does turn out that one of the plot threads is regarding the death of this character and that the cops have killed him in execution style as well yeah it's very much a a modern take on the martin luther king malcolm x it is yeah and i do want to talk about just for a second both how the technology plays into this and how it's predicted things that are happening around us right now. I mean, we're still in the midst of an unfortunate thing that happened in America, which was the um, the Ferguson riots and what has informed them and what's happened since and how many black individuals have died at the hands of cops in America. We're still getting it now and it's fueled the Black Lives Matter movement. And this film does play into that. This whole riot in the film is almost like a Black Lives Matter riot just bubbling over the edge. But even in the way that this execution has been captured through this woman's POV as she's bearing witness to this execution and she runs away is remarkably similar to what we've seen from America in terms of everybody's got a camera, everybody's filming, and it always looks like it's POV. It's always being like mm. handheld and moved. Yeah. And it's almost like not only is this film predicted that we will live out these same mistakes over and over again, mm. but it's also predicted just how these things are going to be shown and how these things are filmed. And also even the technology in itself to divorce it from that racial social message. It's also predicted how we live our lives today, wrapped in nostalgia, wrapped in the past with our Facebook pages that document our every single happening and our YouTube pages in which we can put up what we did today and relive Mm. it and go back and watch it again and again and again and again. It's kind of visualized just how we are going to live our lives 20 years ago. And how impersonal it is as well. Yeah. Because... 
the main thing that it's commenting on at the time is that those memories were originally yours or the individuals, but now that everybody's, yeah, everybody can have access to your experiences. And in a way, it's one of those um, ideas that doesn't really get played on. In fact, I think it's just not enough room for it. But there's a scene towards the start of the film when he's pitching the experiences to an attorney. And he's talking about how you can be anybody you want to be. Yeah. You know, whatever your preference is, whatever you want, uh, whether you want to be a guy, whether you want to be a girl. There's that element that doesn't really get played on. I mean, that could be a whole other film. It could, yeah. Talking about another film that we could probably do. Surrogates deals with that kind of idea, but in a shit way. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it squanders all of its potential. It has a lot of potential. There's so much potential that you could have mined out. I think it's just because the other idea encroaches on it. The Rodney King inspiration probably would have usurped that road Mm -hmm. because there's a whole other film there. I mean, even just in a way that the internet has changed how more accessible snuff films are. I mean, you add a click of a couple of buttons, you can go online and watch real people die in a whole manner of different ways. And this film's almost like predicted that. It's saying, oh, you want to experience death without actually doing it yourself? Mm. Here we go. Just put on this headset. Yeah. I mean, it gets it wrong in the in the details, obviously, because every film that predicts the future always gets it wrong in the details. Course, but in the course. grand themes, it does get a lot of things completely dead on. And it's quite disturbing how much it does actually get dead on. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like the film's slightly undone by the fact that it, because it's a millennium film, mm-hmm. I don't feel it gave itself enough time because obviously... Uh, kind of now puts it in a time and a place. Yeah, because now it's looked at as a uh, as an alternative history film. Yes. Really. Which, uh, to be honest, with any film, it, that's always going to be the case. But I kind of feel they, they made its shelf life a little bit too short because mm-hmm. of that. I know what they were doing and it would have worked at the time. But I think you have to look at it now as an alternative history or just kind of forget that it is a 2000 set or 1999 set film. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it does have a lot to say about how things are now and again there's a a couple of things that date it like the mini discs and stuff like that but a lot of what it's saying is does ring true it does and continues to ring Mm. true but i think this might be a good way just to edge into the filmmaking side because i've been talking a lot about this pov stuff yeah uh, as a massive element of the film and i've read that a lot of people saying oh it's quite a common thing now this old pov stuff but i would have to say Obviously, at the time, this was very, very new. Yeah. No one really done this to this level before. And even just watching it, I still can't quite work out how they did some of the things that they did. And yeah. also, I don't think there's been many films that have used POV quite as good as they do in this film. Yeah, there's really subtle elements like Ray Fiennes looking at himself in the mirror, mm. which I was looking at like, is that CGI? Because I can't see the I've line. I can't see the clue. joins whatsoever. It's like Juliet Lewis is right there next to the camera as well, yep. and her reflection is there. So it's not like they've done the that whole mm. um, oh we used a double in the mirror. Yeah, it's something that you wouldn't even pick up on watching it. No, but when I saw it, it's I was so like, well that done. is fantastic. It's so well done that it's one of those invisible effects. Yeah, so it's like it's always the burden on effects people, or even just the logistics of how they did it, because it probably would have been very complicated. But the fact that they pulled it off that no one notices. <laughs> yeah. Sort of thing. <laughs> just even the fact that um, the opening sequence, which is a um, a bank robbery. So the idea is that, obviously, with the experiences, they actually have to be experienced by someone for them to even be there in the first place because they're all real experiences. They're not made up because that's what I misinterpreted when I first watched the film. I thought it was like a virtual reality kind of thing, but it's actually they're all real experiences, but they're Mm -hmm. just recorded. But Sorry, it's it's a restaurant robbery that goes wrong. Yeah. And the person with the headset on 
ultimately falls to his death. Falls to his yeah. death. Yeah, that's called a blackjack, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's basically the equivalent of a snuff movie because someone's died in it, and he has to cut that out because he doesn't deal with blackjacks. But that whole opening sequence is really well executed. It's a really great way to start the film, just in terms of to introduce the idea of what's going on, but also be ambiguous enough as well, because it's quite visually exciting. But Mm -hmm. that sequence is entirely POV, but it's actually shot in four different locations, even though you can't really tell, because what it does, because it's frantic anyway, and obviously you would be looking around like that, it achieves it by just cutting everything together with whip pans, uh, but just really skillfully, because what they did with this... um, They built this rig, so Lightstorm... Uh, James Cameron's company, they spent a year developing this special camera that they could use as a POV camera and it weighed 8 pounds it was 35 millimeter. I'd imagine that would be similar to what a uh, DSLR would be like if it was 8 pounds Yeah, it's like a 35 millimeter DSLR um, (laughs) which is weird and basically the idea what they wanted to do is do all this POV stuff but not give everyone a headache Yeah, I think other films have done this but have not achieved as well because they haven't achieved that balance between being smooth enough and jittery enough yeah. it's like you get films like um, well it is stylized and, and mm. it needs to be stylized because if it was truly POV it would yeah. be too disorientating and you are right this film does strike a balance it is just enough smoothness to it that it doesn't uh, encroach on your enjoyment of the film no but it also doesn't break reality yeah it doesn't just glide yeah because uh the dop um you said about 60 percent of the film does feature some sort of steadicam shot i mean the the shots are always generally moving it's a film yeah. that moves a lot and doesn't stay static but yeah this rig i've not seen a photo of it but um sounds interesting sounds really yeah. really cool and um really really innovative again it's one of those things where ahead of its time <laughs> you get a james cameron really? involved film that pushes the technology further mm-hmm. although again i think a lot of that is down to catherine bigelow pushing it as well because this is something that she requested herself so i think it's not more it's james cameron i think it's just that they are like-minded yeah in that sense i've always found that they complement each other yeah. as well as filmmakers it's a shame that they haven't worked together more often because they are both opposite ends of the coin yeah and it's because of james cameron's dirty dick <laughs> keep that dick in your pants mr cameron oh man you're ruining future film experiences here <laughs> <laughs> You never thought I'd be saying that in this no, commentary, no, did you? No, that takes a box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and the other thing, this shoot was quite arduous because it was an 80-day shoot and they spent 77 of those on night shoots. There's only three days that they actually shot in daylight. Wow. Which I would imagine there's the, there's the scene when they're doing the rollerblading outside yeah. with the memory. And there's a scene where Tom Seasmore's character is on the phone to there Lenny. Is, yeah. And there's a couple of motel shots there, there is a couple of motel daylight shots pretty yeah. much that's it everything else is at night time so yeah it was quite arduous and then he had all these technical things to deal with as well so i'd imagine uh, yeah it would have been quite a grueling shoot to handle and then you have the added thing of having this massive celebration to coordinate at the end i mean this, this film was quite technically challenging because mm-hmm. we had this uh a mock New Year's Eve Millennium Celebration, which featured 10,000 extras. Yeah, I actually have some information on the celebration that they actually had in the end. Yeah, you're right. They did have 10,000 extras, although, no, the reported attendance was, in fact, 14,000. Oh. And they sold tickets for people to join by... What they did was they hosted a rave by rave promoter Philip Blaine. The event featured Aphex Twin and D-Light. Mm-hmm. It was called Millennium, the event. 
and tickets were sold for $10 plus food and drink was free. Mm-hmm. And the reported attendance was 14,000 people and the event went on until 2am when fire marshals were eventually called because several inches of confetti around the entire site caught fire. But nobody was hurt. And I think there was additional challenges as well because the main part that they used was Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. And they had to light it so that they could film multiple sequences at the same time. Yeah. Because obviously they only had this crowd for a certain amount of time. They would have actually had to have multiple units shooting different elements at the same time. So therefore, they'd have to light it in such a way that it's not obvious that everything's been lit, but also have it lit for the scenes that they're shooting. Yeah. It would have been a very stressful day. <laughs> yeah, it sounds it. <laughs> But yeah, he pulled it off. I mean, it does genuinely feel like it's a actual celebration. It does. Actually taking place at that time. I mean, this is a film that's made for $42 million, but for things like that, it just feels like it was made for more money than that. feels so much bigger, yeah. Yeah. Let's not forget that like Terminator 2 and True Lies were made for a lot more money than this was made, and it still feels like it's that scale. It does. In fact, this film shares a location with True Lies in the uh, Bonaventura Hotel. It's that hotel again. Is it that hotel? hotel. I had no idea. Actually, this time in its correct location, because obviously in True Lies, it was meant to be in a different city, but in uh, this film, it's actually in LA. Yeah, it's the hotel where Arnie almost fell off with the horse, isn't it? Yeah, it's the the main reason I've noticed it. It's quite visually distinctive, but mainly because of the lifts that they go up in. Of course. I like that tidbit. It's a nice little tidbit. Well, I think before we actually start wrapping up on Strange Days, there are a couple of things that we've skirted around, mm. but not actually discussed. And one of them is a scene that is, well, it's that scene. Yeah, it's, it's uh, notorious. Yeah, it's quite upsetting and disturbing. Mm. So I'll offer any trigger warnings straight off the bat and say that we are about to start discussing what is essentially a rape scene. Mm. But a very unique rape scene. It is a very unique yeah. rape scene. Because it's all told in POV yeah. as well. But I think there's things that happen in it that make it even more disturbing than it would actually normally be. So, uh, yeah, it's basically uh, a rape scene that's amplified up to 11. It's really not nice, but it's done in a tasteful way. It's kind of odd uh, yeah. how it's done. but um, well, it's, it's not gratuitous no. in terms of what it shows. But it's, yet, it's what it insinuates that's it, disturbing. It lands so much harder yeah. with so much more brutality as well, despite showing very little and fortunately, yeah. thankfully, mercifully, very little. Yeah, but the idea is that the character who's committing the rape, who obviously ultimately is revealed to be Tom Seesmore, is recording this with the headset on. But then what he does whilst he's doing the rape is puts a headset on the person and then relays it so that they're experiencing what he's experiencing. So they're actually experiencing... They're seeing... Kind of going inside of themselves. And feeling themselves yeah. being raped from the perspective of the attacker. Yeah, it's, it's really not nice. And, <laughs> and it's it's truly an awful, yeah. awful little scene just in terms of what it achieves as well because it hurts to watch. Mm. And not only that, but you also have the weirdness as well of Lenny experiencing this memory as well. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that we've talked about these memories is you don't just get to see a memory. It's not yeah, just you feel it. it, it you feel it as well. You yeah. feel it like as if you are there. And you've got these shots of Lenny at the back who's both seemingly aroused whilst also being completely disgusted yeah. and terrified and panicked. Mm. Meanwhile, he knows he has to continue this memory, mm. which is it's just such a weirdness. It's, but it's so well executed. And it's so unique as yeah. well. I mean, I think that's probably one of the other things that would have attracted the actors to do this film, just to do a scene like that, which is so atypical of anything that you would be normally asked to play or do. Yeah. It must have been really um, interesting to read for the first time going... 
oh fuck <laughs> i gotta play this well that's a challenge yeah uh, sort of thing and they really pull it off and but the thing is it's it, it did uh, cause quite a lot of controversy at the time and it, i mean this is a film that has kind of got a polarized audience and this is one of the scenes that did it i think it got misinterpreted at the time but it is a uh, quite amazing considering the horrific nature of the ideas that are at play how subtle it plays it yeah. how tasteful it plays it again it's not gratuitous it's it treads that fine line between being yeah. inappropriate and appropriate my whole thing with this whole section is that it's just a shame that it's the story that doesn't quite work and it's a shame because everything else leading up to the end is so strong mm. and you yeah. think it's going somewhere better than it goes in fact yeah it's a shame that it doesn't have more to say and i think the main reason is that the film's all about misdirection so the max character is making the main characters feel more paranoid about the world around them yeah which is a very relevant definitely now it's actually that's another thing we haven't really talked about how it makes the main characters feel more paranoid about the situation that they live in than they actually should be mm -hmm. and it's quite a nice twist when you see the person you think it's going to be or who the characters think it's going to be actually technically dead yeah at the end of the film when it's revealed when he's playing back this final memory because the final memory is that lenny thinks he's witnessing the rape of faith who's juliet lewis's character but in fact it's all an act and it's the uh, michael wincott character that's kind of been killed in inverted commas by having his brain fried although he does get killed eventually yeah it's just in that dialogue scene with tom yeah. seesmore confronting lenny there's something in the way that it's said and edited together because it does feel like i'm not sure whether it's an obvious thing that it's edited obviously from different takes of the speech mm -hmm. it kind of felt a little bit disjointed for me and i couldn't quite follow what he was saying but also i couldn't quite picture his motivations or why no, he was doing I, I what he was doing. still don't know why he's doing what he's doing i mean it's mentioned earlier on the film somebody says that oh there's something wrong with this the image which is the pov rape said oh there's something wrong with the image like this person's got a tumor or something wrong that's affecting their eyesight turns out he's actually colorblind mm. see i thought it was actually leading into the idea that he was in fact got a brain tumor and that's mm. making him act out on these kind of his sickest most weirdest desires but i don't actually know why he turns on lenny specifically his lifelong friend yeah because he was gonna frame him for philo's murder but i don't know what the grudge is i don't get the deal with him and faith either no the fact that faith is just a bit of a shit it just doesn't quite come together and it just didn't satisfy me mm -hmm. considering how strong the setup is and how strong the execution of the main body yeah. of that plot it was really a, a bit of a letdown see that's where the film's let down for me it's in that arc because i really like where it goes with the two cop characters and what happens there i, I like the denouncement even though i think it ties up the bowl really too fucking sweet yeah but i much prefer where that story goes than this story yeah because at least that one feels like it's got a conclusion even though i don't buy into it yeah whereas this one it feels like it's from nowhere well even though you can see it's tom sizemore coming because it's tom sizemore i think it's also because like oh they did do tom it is tom sizemore yeah, it's kind yeah, of a bit exactly, disappointing yeah. actually because of the casting choice of it it's like it would have been interesting to, for it actually have been somebody else it's a shame because it's otherwise really so strong and it does somewhat diminish that earlier scene when you go back and watch it because you know that it's not going to really add up to much yeah and also because the two main strands of the story are tied up separately to each other like the intercutting isn't there because you have that climax 
and then you have another climax with with the police officers it does feel like a very disjointed finale like it does feel like there's too many endings yeah when they kind of almost should have ended together yeah exactly that's that's it yeah which makes the film feel a little bit overlong i mean it is a bit overlong i'd say it's probably about 10 minutes too long yes it is two hours and 25 minutes but you are you're always waiting for the two stories to tie into each other in a bigger way you're always Mm. waiting for this thing that's happened with the cops to tie into what's happened with this woman yeah this horrible terrible thing that's happened to this woman and you're expecting it to somehow come round about oh that's how it all works that's why but it ends up being two completely separate things yeah although there is the um one bright side of all this and which is we do get to see tom sizemore be de-wigged <laughs> yeah because there's quite a lot of long-haired people in this and it's it is a actually a, a plot point rather than just it being a, a bad wig it's it's funny actually it's revealed much earlier on in the film that there's quite a lot of these um they're almost like prostitutes in a way who are collecting some of these experiences like they even visit one person it's done like a porno but from yeah. the actual experience point of view because they can sell them like pornos actually the character of lenny's described as a pornographer at one point in the film but they all wear these wigs to hide the fact that they are wearing these headsets so yeah. the experience can be as real as possible the character of max he has this really long hair which doesn't seem quite right it just looks like a bad wig for yeah. quite a large proportion of the film it's like this is a weird why have they got this wig on but then it's actually revealed later on that it's actually a plot point the fact that max has been recording all of this the whole time yeah just for his own sick little pleasure and he literally just has it on all the time mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's when the fight where he actually gets pulled off and i was like oh shit it is a wig <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of like oh that's satisfying because i just thought it was just bad makeup mm-hmm. <laughs> i do also like what it has to say in that scene where they talk to the pornographers really and they've been having this lesbian sex so that they can sell it really mm. I forgot to mention that I do love what it has to say about all that because it's essentially positing the idea that these memories are artificial. They're all being created. They're not what's really happening in real life. Even by the act of putting that on and making yeah, something happen, staged you're making time, a staged yeah. memory. So people are reliving things that didn't really happen in the way that they really happened. Yeah, it even more ties into the kind of artificial ways in which we relive our own lives and stuff like that. I do also like the way that it introduces where this technology has come from because it presents it in an almost plausible way because the original purpose of this device was to replace wires for yeah. the FBI and uh, have like a proper first person viewpoint of people undercover and yeah. investigating even though it's definitely a bit too far off for the time, it makes it a very plausible kind of technology that would eventually be developed yeah. or something. It kind of feels like if it's come from that background and then been retrofitted for this other purpose, it, it does make it feel a lot more plausible yeah. than if it's just been invented by someone for this purpose. However, I do get a feeling that you'd have a lot of gangsters go and check if that's a wig yeah. once they got on to the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it does, it definitely, yeah, definitely does. But I do like how it's set up that, it, it does set that whole fad as a, a, as a real working yeah, functioning thing. Yeah, it feels in-world like real. Yeah. In a way that as well like uh, another film that tries to do something like this but it never quite pays off is um, with Inception with the Dream Machine uh, yeah. where it's just mentioned offhand that it was developed by the military or something like that mm. and then it's never mentioned again. You're like, oh, I don't really buy that but the rest of the film's so good, it's okay. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in this you really buy it that it feels like it's part of the world Yeah. and this world has kind of developed along with it as well to use it in different ways. Yeah. That's the moments that I think Strange Days works best. Mm. I and mean, it's another film where the, 
the world building is successful because it's the characters are informed by that world in a very direct way. Yeah. They're not just in the world because. Because mm-hmm. there are too many films where it's a cool looking world, but so what? Whereas this world, everything in the story ties back to it. And it it's does. informed by and feeds off it. So, yeah, in that sense. And again, it's just slightly frustrating that it doesn't quite land at the end. Yeah. Because it's so engrossing. And it's an otherwise five out of five film. It yeah. Really is. And it's only just you just have to knock off one star just because it doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite land. Yeah. Because it is. Yeah, it's literally a four out of five film and could have almost been a five out of five. It's film so cause, close. Because it's so good for so long. So that, my friends, is Strange Days. Now it's that time of the podcast where we try to figure out just why this film has been forgotten. Was Strange Days a giant flop and did critics like it? Did they hate it? What did they think of it? It's time for us to move on to the stats and facts. First up, here are the critics. So it's over to you, Andy, this week as you're going to tell us the Rotten Tomatoes score for Strange Days. Okay, so the average rating on Rotten Tomatoes is 63% with an average rating of 6.2 out of 10. Which is way too low in my opinion. Yeah, it's far too low. I would say this is probably... I'd say in the 80s. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I'd say at least a mid-80s. Yeah. If they'd sorted that ending out, it probably could have gone into the 90s. Because it is that good. Yeah. It's two hours, 25 minutes. It's brilliant for two hours of it, at least. Yeah. Yeah, it's got an audience score of 3.3 out of 5. Still a little bit low. It's still a little bit low, knowing that last week, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen did 3 out of 5. But even now, when you just look at people's reviews of the film... um, they are still very polarised. There's some people that absolutely love it. There's some people that just don't get it or they just didn't think it was that good. I think there always is, though. When there's you, when you have a film that comments on current social situations, and this is a film that really draws a line in the sand and says, I am with these people. Mm. I am with this side. There's always going to be that whole other half of people that aren't going to agree with that. Mm. And I guess because this is a film that says, this is what I believe in, you were going to have half the audience that say, well, I don't believe in that. Mm-hmm. So um, going to actual reviews, Empire gave this four out of five, which is a William Thomas review. He said, Bigelow has encapsulated a million paranoias under one guise and her craft borders on the sublime. From the visceral plunges of the first-person mind clip sequences, including a terrifying controversy courting rape sequence, to the overwhelming finale, this is a literally stunning event. Some directors can, thank God, still make you experience films. And I think that's a pretty good summation of this film. And uh, yeah, very similar to what we experienced the other week with Dark City. Definitely. This is a film that kind of polarised audiences at the time, but there is one person who absolutely adored it, and that is Mr. Roger Ebert. Yes, he uh, championed it. Again, gave this film four out of four. And what he says is, this is the first movie about virtual reality to deal in a challenging way with the implications of the technology. It's fascinating the way Bigelow is able to suggest so much of VR's impact and dangers within a movie. As the character Faith observed, one of the ways movies are still better than playback, the music comes up and you know it's over. Yeah. Yeah, I did like that as a line in the film. It is, yeah. It's a great line. And uh, IMDb, the score is 7.2 out of 10, which again is a little low. It is a little low, but it's at least fortunately higher than uh, what Rotten Tomatoes have to say, really. So Yeah. As we can see, it has split audiences in two. Yeah. And I, I can see why. I can see uh, it's not a film for everybody. Yeah. It really isn't. And even just in the way that it's executed because at the end of the day some people do like their heroes to be heroes and uh, they do like things a little more clean cut and that's just how uh, a lot of films are presented to people so they get used to a certain kind of thing so when it's not like that yeah they're out of their comfort zone i mean there's a lot of things in this film that 
put people out of their comfort zones. Yeah. And could be quite disturbing or uncomfortable for people because there are a lot of things that go way, way beyond anything that James Cameron does in his own films. Mm -hmm. Like, way, way beyond. And uh, I think that would not sit well with quite a lot of people, especially people who are a bit more conservative. I would say this is definitely a... uh, a liberal film. Most certainly <laughs> is. So, uh, yeah, I can definitely see why it polarised audiences at the time. But again, I think this is down to um, how the studio treated it at the time, because I don't think they understood the film or knew what to do with it either, as is going to be reflected in the box office. Well, I do have the box office figures in front of me now. First off, we have to establish the budget, which I think you have mentioned through the podcast. Strange Days had a working budget of $42 million, a production budget, sorry, of $42 million. However, its total domestic lifetime gross was just $8 million. I mean, its first wide opening weekend was just $3 million, and that was 45% of the overall gross. Yeah. Do we know what the worldwide gross is? There is no worldwide gross, and I could not find any of the figures anywhere. But I cannot remember this film actually being released over here. I remember it being in the video shop, mm. but I can't remember it ever getting a cinema release I'm here. I'm thinking maybe limited release. I reckon this film may have made somewhere in between 12 to $15 million overall. Yeah. Something really bad like that, where it's not even half of its budget. No, and in fact, like I say, when I did eventually get around to watching this film, when I was in college, which was a good 10 years after this film had been released, I still had no idea about this film, what this film was, yeah. where it had come from. It just kind of surprised me. And considering that it involved a lot of names that I loved, James Cameron, Catherine Bigelow, Ray Fiennes was always an actor that I really appreciated, yet I'd never heard of it until then. Yeah. It was it, it, it had not just been dumped, but it had been brushed under the carpet. And if it did have a limited release in britain and in europe i think that was a huge mistake yeah because i could bet money on that this film would have done a lot better in foreign territories mm-hmm. just for its subject matter who it stars and just the whole style of the way that the film's made it does feel more like it could have been a european film yeah it does like easily and obviously because of ray fines as well i reckon it could have done pretty well in britain and also in the rest of europe well we've seen before that it's often the films that are more critical of america and american way of life that bomb hardest yeah and yet in the rest of the world they pick up well, i mm. think we've seen it before with a couple of our the films we've covered and this is definitely falls into that category mm. it has a lot to say about what america is at that time mm. and what it is now i guess mm. i guess that's part of the reason it hasn't connected is because people don't like to hear that about the place they live they don't like to hear that about their home No. I mean, James Cameron always makes those kind of comments, but the films that do well are the ones where he removes it from the actual real-life situation. So you get the class war in Titanic, but it's displaced to a different time period and a central situation, so people don't really pick on a bit People feel comfortable. Yeah, and obviously you've got the whole Romeo and Juliet thing overriding that, Mm -hmm. and you get obviously the, the race thing in Avatar, but because it's displanted to a different planet, yeah. That whole thing is glossed over or, or for the general audience anyway. So the fact that it directly relates to real world situations that people have seen mm-hmm. in the same city that it happened yeah. and has continued to happen in places and time and that it gives it a very nightmarish look. I mean, one of the very first notes that I wrote when I was actually viewing the first opening scenes of the film, not knowing what the rest of the film would be about, I actually wrote that it feels very much like Robocop yeah. in terms yeah. of that alternate future. In terms of the old Detroit, it did feel like that. 
And yeah, a little bit terminator as well, because when they were making Terminator, LA wasn't a really nice place to be. No. But I can completely see why it's not done very well, because you've got quite a few unconventional elements, a lot of very edgy stuff in it, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, it's commenting on things that maybe people don't want to hear. Well, I think I, I don't have to ask the first question, <laughs> then, of our usual wrap-up. I've just answered it for you. You have just answered <laughs> it absolutely on the money, Yeah. which is, why has this film been forgotten? Mm. And I absolutely agree with you. People don't like to hear that as well. So I guess all that, that leaves me to ask is the final question, mm. which is, is Strange Days one of the best of the forgotten movies, or should it remain best forgotten? I mean, I think I want to answer this straight <laughs> off the bat and just say this is definitely one of the best of the forgotten films definitely. we've I mean, ever covered. It's yeah. certainly an, a top-tier film, despite the fact that it kind of falls apart at the yeah, end. Not everything lands yeah. down to the ground in a satisfying way, but when it's up in the air, it's fucking brilliant. It certainly stumbles, but it still finishes first in the race. That's, that's yeah. the thing. And uh, again, we've always got time for films that have interesting ideas and just overflowing with them. Yeah, I've always got time for things like that. I mean, there's too many films these days that just don't have enough ideas or they're just retreads of old things yeah in fact actually there was one review that i read of this film where it was like oh it's just retreading old ideas and i was like you can say that about any film but it's how it does it yeah uh, and i think this does it in a quite a unique way and uh the other thing we haven't mentioned is um how um philip k dickish oh totally is. really is someone did describe this as a spiritual sequel to blade runner yeah. In fact, there is a little in reference to Blade Runner in the film. It's in the dream sequence where Juliet Lewis's character goes, dry me, which is a direct line from Blade Runner. I didn't realize. So there is a little yeah. wink, wink. It is, yeah. Like we're doing something like this sort of thing. So yeah, but it is. it does live in that world. It could plausibly be a story that had been written yeah, by Philip K. Dick. It could be a blade on a prequel mm. <laughs> you know it does definitely feel part of that world like this is the history of la before yeah <laughs> 2019 or wherever it was going to be yeah it does feel like everything's heading that way yeah it does feel like if you wanted to you could say this is filmed in the same universe as blade Runner. let's do the philip k dick cinematic universe yeah. <laughs> don't give him ideas gaz because they'll be remaking blade runner rather than just doing a sequel dear god <laughs> But yeah, I think we are unanimously agreed that Strange Days is definitely one of the best of the forgotten mm. films we've ever covered. Oh no, I'm just thinking of if Blade Runner was directed by Zack Snyder. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> that's not a good thought. And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies, so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time, to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week as we return to the series featuring everyone's favourite sex offender. That's right, we're revisiting Bond, James Bond, in Licence to Kill. But until then, it's bye from myself, and cheerio from Andy! Ugh, mini-discs. Thank you for listening.